0: All right, let's give a hand for Be Fearless. Wasn't that great? We hope that you will continue to participate uh, this weekend, because that really is a great part of our church. This is a part of who we are, and we believe that you're here because you want to get the most out of this church, and that is a snapshot of who we want to be and who we're becoming. So, my name's Jared, as Hillary kind of got to in there somewhere. I mean, that was amazing. Can we just give Hillary a hand for just (laughs) that? we're all uncomfortable now. Just kidding. So my name is Jared. I worked at Mariners actually for 11 years and McGuire, who I love, he is the one that offered me a job at this crazy church. So I started off um, in college. I was a junior high volunteer and uh, spent a lot of time, yeah, hanging out with uh, seventh and eighth graders and all that kind of stuff. And I was kind of the perfect junior high volunteer because I was six foot four and 130 pounds. So uh, every time I moved, it just made kids laugh. So it was a great thing. It was like, look at that lanky guy. So uh, I started uh, volunteering in junior high ministry, and then McGuire saw me on the patio, obviously stunned by my skinniness, and was like, You need to come work in high school. And I was a little afraid. High school kids are scary. If you've met me, they're really terrifying people. And so I'm like, I don't know if I can do that, but I'll give it a shot. And so uh, out of nowhere, literally, McGuire just said, I have a job for you. And I was like, Wow, that's amazing. This is exactly what I want to do. So. I worked for Jeff for six years at the Irvine campus. Uh, got to do a whole lot of fun stuff with him, learning uh, from him. And then I became our junior high pastor at the Irvine campus. And then for the last few years, I've been our high school pastor up there. Uh, just a few months ago, though, I transitioned out of being on full-time staff with the church. And now, I, this came up last service, I'll just tell you. Uh, now I come alongside teenagers, young adults, um, college and beyond, and I do some life coaching stuff with them. So I get to still hang out with my favorite people on the planet, and maybe the best part is I get to still be a part of Mariner's Church, and so I'm on the teaching rotation. Just a couple weeks ago, I was at Ocean Hills, and then I'll be heading out to Huntington Beach in a few weeks here, but today is the best because I am with you guys, right? Isn't this great? I'm so excited to be with you. So... Um, as we, as we jump in, I just thought I'd show you, um, a picture of people that are far better looking than me. So this is my family. Uh, my wife is Kim over there and then our son is Asher. He's about four and a half. And then Ellie is our little daughter there. This is at her first birthday, but she's actually, uh, 18 months old now. So I just show you that so that you like me more. So that's, uh, that's my, that's my family there. Now, um, if you have kids, you know that being a parent is the best. They're just, they make you a better person. They bring so much joy in your life. And you get to go to the park more often. And um, and you also know that being a parent is by far the hardest job on the planet. Like, they never go away. (laughs) They don't stop whining and crying and asking and they never eat their food and they have a hard time sleeping all the time, right? So it's like a hard job and my wife, bless her heart, she's a stay-at-home mom, which is the greatest but then also the hardest, right? And so uh, a, few, um, uh, a few months ago, we were having one of those really crazy hard days. Our kids teamed up against us, tried to destroy us. Um, <laughs> it was an all-out war and... Uh, <laughs> You know, we, we struggle through the day. We finally get him down to bed. And it's that calm after the storm. And my wife is sitting on the couch and she's just kind of holding her face. And I was like, this is your moment to be the best husband of all time. And so I sat next to her on the couch. I put my arm around her. And in my mind, I'm like, this is like, what I say now matters. Like, it it was in my head. This is important, the words that come out of your mouth. And so I I started, not where I wanted to finish, I started, I said, um, I said, babe, I go, doesn't it feel like some people just have the spiritual gift of mothering? (laughs) Yeah, yeah right? And and as soon as I said it, I was like, no! Internally just punching myself in the face, you know? I'm like, this is not the opening sentence I had thought of. Like, this is not where I wanted to go with this. And my wife's now shaking with not, like, not frustration of the day, anger at me in this moment. Now, like, my husband's the worst, you know? And so she's shaking, and I'm like, follow up. Clean it up. You made a mess. You got to pick it up now. Like, you can do this. And I'm like, like just choking, and she stands up, doesn't even look at me, walks out of the room. <laughs> and I didn't see her for three weeks. And so, <laughs> just kidding, She walked, after, we, we, we healed it up. We're good, you guys. But I had that moment, which I hope some of you have had, where you said something that you wish you never said. By show of hands, have you had that moment in your life somewhere? Okay, there are lots of you on my side, and there are liars in here too. Now, we are humans. Like, we say things that we don't mean sometimes, and you have that moment where you want to just pull them back into your mouth, swallow them, and start over, but you can't, right? Now, we're in a series that's called The Things I Wish Jesus Never Said, and I think that there are some things from the disciples' perspective that they wish Jesus never said. Now, for us, it's still true. There's things that we hear that Jesus has said, and it's like, there's no way you meant that. Like, that couldn't be the intent like you 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 wanted to pull that one back in, start over, and say something different, right? And I think the disciples had a really tough job as they followed Jesus around because he wasn't great for PR all the time, right? He wasn't considering the campaign or the movement or what he was trying to do in life because he said some things that were offensive and painful and challenging and just downright wrong, you know what I'm talking about? So when he says those things, we have to wrestle with why did he say it? Because I believe, and I'm sure you do too, that Jesus meant what he said We have to ask ourselves, why did he say that? Now, there's lots of great passages in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. We love to fill our homes and our clothing and tattoo our bodies with scriptures that are wonderful and pleasant, right? I brought a couple of examples just so that we can remind ourselves of some good things in the Bible. It says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's a nice little entryway piece. You come in there at the model home, apparently, and you go in, and, and it's just like, wow, what a beautiful declaration. This family, I wonder what they're gonna do. I bet they're gonna serve the Lord, right, in their house. Okay, what about this one then? I got another one. Um, it's a nice pillow that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nothing like a little lower lumbar support, you know, reminding you that you can do all things through Christ as you're watching Netflix all day. You know what I mean? Like, this is a nice... This is a nice pillow. Uh, I got one more, I think. Here, a coffee mug. It just says, "Be still and know that I am God." Where you're out by a meadow with your fresh manicure, and and you're just sipping coffee, and you feel warm in your spirit, and you're going, mm, "I will be still and know <laughs> that." God is God, unless you're at my house at 6.30 in the morning. It's like all-out war and chaos, and there's darts flying past your head, and you're sipping coffee while having a lightsaber battle, and you're like, I will never be still again, will I? Now, these are nice nice passages. The one I want to share with you today, though, is a little bit more challenging. It comes out of Mark chapter 10. Jesus says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Put that on a throw pillow, right? <laughs> right? Get this on your t-shirt and walk around the mall with this on. Like, people are going, that dude is crazy. Like, What's going on? You walk in this and you see that on the couch and you're like, is there another chair option that I could sit on because things are getting strange here, Right. Jesus had a tendency of saying some things that we have to really question. Why on earth did he say that? And here's what I want to do today. This is my premise, that I believe that when Jesus said this to the disciples, when he said, whoever wants to become great among you, he had a reason that he said that. It's because the disciples are just like you and I. Deep down inside of us, we want to be great. We want to do something great and meaningful with our life. In fact, I say it this way to a lot of people I work with, that there is a great story inside all of us. I believe that from the beginning of time, every single one of us has something within us that wants to be great and wants to live a great story with our life. In fact, if you are under the age of 30-ish, you probably resonate with this sentence Um, a lot. You hear this and you go, I want to do something meaningful. I want to do something that matters. I want to change the world. I want to make a difference. Because that's a, a little symbol of our generation. And for others of us, I believe this is true about you too. You just might package it a little bit differently, right? The question though is, what does it mean to be great? What is a great story? If we went out into the rest of the universe around us and we just started asking people, hey, what does it mean to be great? You're gonna get a huge spectrum of answers, aren't you? Some people will go and say, you know what it means to be great? You have to have like an epic, unbelievable tale like that movie Unbreakable, right? So you gotta have this unreal story that you overcome all kinds of these other things and they make a movie about you. That's a great story, okay? Other people might define a great story as the person with the largest bank account with the best looking family, with the largest house, right? That's how they might define great. Or maybe they use the word success. And we think, you know what we're all chasing after is to be successful. And so that's how you define a great story. Well, that's a problem, isn't it? Because I don't believe that Jesus was saying to his disciples, hey, I know you want to be great, and I'm going to teach you the five ways to become great. And it's a motivational talk, and it's all about your influence and power and authority, and it's going to work. No, he used words like servant and slave in his definition of great. So what I hope to do this morning in just a few minutes is help us understand that there is a great story inside all of us, but that story might not look like we define great in the rest of our life. Is that okay? Okay, so here's the first part. A great story begins with saying yes. Disciples, as they were um, living their life. Jesus was becoming this prominent figure. So in the first century... If you were a young Jewish uh, boy in your teenage years or something like that, you would grow up in a family and you would go to like rabbinic school and you would memorize and study the first five books of the Bible and your goal, pretty much every Jewish boy's goal was to grow up and be in the Pharisee world, the elite people that knew the law more than anybody else. The problem is most people failed out along the way. And when they failed out, they went to go work for their father's business. So Jesus, in this story that I'm about to show you, Jesus is starting to gain a following. People are curious about this message that he brings. He's not just teaching the kingdom of God, he is demonstrating it. The old Bible way to say that he is proclaiming and demonstrating that the kingdom of God has come near. He's saying things that people are like, wow, I have to hear more, and then he's healing people. And he's, people are bringing their sick to him and he's, and he's restoring them. So he's gaining a lot of momentum. Now, part of being a rabbi, a teacher in the first century, is you had a group of people following you called disciples. They were there to learn everything about you so that when you stopped existing, the disciples carried on your message. They became little you so that when you were gone, they could become them carrying on you. Does that make sense? So Jesus is uh, right on the side of a lake, the Lake Gennesaret, and a crowd is formed. People are intrigued. He realizes from where I'm standing, I need to step in this boat and push away from shore a little bit and teach the people. So he does that, and he teaches all kinds of other people. Now, as he finishes, this is where we'll pick up. When he finished speaking, he said to Simon, who is also Peter, he says, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Now, based on what I just said to you, who would know more about fishing, Simon or Jesus? Yeah, okay, normally the answer in this room is Jesus, isn't it? Like, if I say that, you go, it's Jesus, obviously, right? Well, no, today, Jesus is the wrong answer, okay, for this story, for this passage. It's Simon. Simon should know more about fishing. This is what he did all day. Master, we have worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Simon and his buddies, this is their job. This is what they do. You fish all night long. That's when they would do it. They were clearly working hard, and they had nothing to show for it. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus, some teacher guy, steps in his boat, and after he gets done teaching, he says, hey, why don't we go have a fish? And Simon's going, okay, we have tried. Nothing worked. But because you say so, this is a very honor uh, culture where he's going, look, you are far greater than me. You're saying things that I can't say. You're demonstrating things I can't do. Because you say so, I will let my nets down. Now, you know the story as it goes on. They let the nets down, he starts to pull it up, Simon's pulling it up, and there's more fish in there that he can handle. He calls to his partners, they bring another boat, they bring in two entire boatloads of fish home, more than any of them knew what to do with, more fish than anyone needed. But Jesus is about abundance, not scarcity, and he says, look at what I can do when I'm with you, right? So as they finish, look at this, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he says, go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Why would he say this? Because in this culture, it would have been bad business for Jesus to be in the presence of sinners. It would have made Jesus look bad. It would have made him unclean. It would have ruined his reputation to be seen with Simon Peter. And Peter knows that and says, get away from me. You are far more than I can handle. Another way to say that is, I am not worthy. I shouldn't be in your presence. I should not be with you. But what happens here? It says, for he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so, and so were James and John, the son of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This, in a story, is called the call to adventure. When Jesus comes along, and he sees a bunch of guys, and he says, I could work with that, and says, come on, let's go on an adventure. Now, recently I read the Hobbit, series, the Hobbit and then Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings books are really long and boring, but The Hobbit was short and fun. So in The Hobbit, there's this great scene where Gandalf walks into the shire and he sees Bilbo sitting on his porch, which is, that's my kind of guy, just hanging out on the porch, you know what I mean? And he sees Bilbo and he says, I'm walking around and I'm looking for somebody to share an adventure with me, but I can't seem to find anybody. And Bilbo pauses for a second and he looks at me. He says, well, I should think so. We are plain quiet folk, and we have no such use for adventures. Well, you know the rest of the story. He was called on one of the greatest adventures of his life, the great adventure of his life. Now, for you and I, I believe that we think down upon ourselves all the time, that when Jesus found us, we were not ready for the adventure that he started bringing us on. That's exactly right. I know that Jesus found me. I was lost. I was confused. I had identity problems going on. Um, I have... All kinds of things from my past that made me feel like there's no way that I could ever serve God. there's no way that I could do anything for him, for him. there's no way that my life could become this great story that, that apparently the disciples got to live. So the question for you is, where did He find you? Where did Jesus find you? When were you invited into this great adventure that Jesus has for you? I would bet that for most of us, we were tired, we were broke. We were struggling, we were lost, and we didn't feel like we had anything to offer Jesus. That's what I love most about Jesus, and I'm serious. I love that Jesus sees potential in us that we would never see for ourselves. That Jesus sees you and says, there's a great story in there somewhere. Might not look like what you think, but I'm gonna take you on an adventure that will change your life and the people around you. Now I believe that in a room this size, there's some of you in this room, that have not had this yes moment. Where you have come in and you're investigating and you're curious, and I'm so glad that you're here because this is a church for you, where you can come in and doubt and be confused and be lost because you are just like the rest of us. We just happen to be people that have said yes to the great adventure. We don't quite know where it's going yet. If you have questions about that, you can come find us afterwards. Come find us in the patio. We would love for you to understand what it looks like to say yes to Jesus even though you feel insignificant and unworthy and like you have nothing to offer because you're in good company in this room. So when we think about this, we think what is this this great adventure that he's coming on? When we think about a great adventure, oftentimes we think about it's gonna be all rainbows and unicorns, and we're gonna be these heroes that wear shining armor and we get to save the day. But the reality is, as you think about every great story you can think of in your life, every great story comes at a great price every great story comes at a great price. There's a a story that I want to spend the rest of our time with here in Mark chapter 10, where we get our passage from Jesus, where James and John, they've been following um, Jesus for a while now, and they have been hearing him and learning from him, and there's this little band of 12 guys that follow Jesus wherever he goes, and they start recognizing this guy is doing something different. He's saying things different. He is clearly the Messiah, even though they did not know what Messiah meant. They thought in their mind the Messiah is going to be the one that will over, overthrow the Roman kingdom. It will end their oppression. It will save them from all the persecution that they're going on. It will literally be the greatest underdog story in the history of the universe when this little tiny nation of Israel led by Jesus on a white horse will destroy the Romans. And so this is cultural that they would believe this. This is deeply embedded in who they are. This is their story waiting for this person. And so when they see Jesus saying the things he says, doing the things he does, it, do, it actually makes perfect sense that James and John would be following after Jesus as brothers whispering to each other saying, you know what, he's gonna have a throne someday. He is going to be the greatest, mightiest, the lion king that we want. That will be him. And where are you and I going to be? There's not going to be 12 seats around Jesus. What are we going to do? There's not room for everybody in this thing. You and me got to be up there. You and me, we're the ones. I should be on the right, clearly, and you should be on the left. Is that okay? Is that good with you? Oh, you want the right. Well, I want the right. What are we going to do about this? Let's get our mom. Mom, go tell Jesus who should be sitting next to him, right and left, right? So they do. They send their mother up to Jesus, most embarrassing, humiliating story in the whole gospel, and their mother pleads on Jesus' behalf and basically says, uh, when you get to your kingdom and you have your giant sword and the big cool horse, um, I want my boys to be with you, right? Now Jesus responds to this, I love it. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And in the worst English possible, he says, can you drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Got it. What Jesus is trying to say is, there is going to be pain and consequences, not consequences, pain and um, implications to the yes that you have said. It is going to be hard and challenging. And can you drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism? And James and John say, yeah, we have no idea what you're talking about. Yes, we can totally do that. We will drink any cup you want us to drink out of. We will be baptized wherever you want us to go swimming, right? So he's like, we have no clue what we're saying yes to, but we absolutely say yes. Now, before we bash on the disciples too much, this is exactly how you and I are, right? In my life, I know, I want the, like the glory without all of the sacrifice that comes with it. Let me tell you a story about when I was in high school. So senior year, uh, I went to a huge high school, 4,200 students, graduating class was 825. Um, really easy to become anonymous, lost and alone and all that. It's also really clear the little class system that happens in high school. Like there are the elite social status. There is the, like, on-deck circle when those ones graduate, and then there's the commoners. And I lived in the commoner world, okay? This was me and my friends. Like, we were totally normal people, um, although I did rise the ranks eventually and became class clown of my high school. Come on. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) The most illustrious of all superlatives. And so, uh, me and my friends, we were sitting together. This is a literal conversation we had. We sat together and we said, okay, what's it going to take for us to rise the ranks within the cool society of our high school? And we had a lot of discussion. There was probably whiteboards involved, lots of arrows and bubbles and all this stuff. And what happened was, um, you all have that one friend who gets you into things that you don't want to do, but he's like, "That's why he's there in your life is to make you do things you don't want to do." My my friend's name was Matt, and he's the worst. And so Matt was like, "Jared, I got it. I know what will happen if you." can get Jenna to go to homecoming with us, you will help us rise like the phoenix from the ashes and into all the glory of high school that we'll ever have. Because Jenna was the most beautiful. She was the most popular. Captain of the cheerleading. She she floated, right? It was amazing. And I sat there and I'm listening to them and the group is getting excited and I thought, you know what? You're right. I can do this. I can raise our entire group into the upper echelons of our high school. We will go down in history as the greatest underdogs of all time. This will be amazing. And so I planned my time. I picked my words carefully. I went to her right before government class, and I said, Jenna, will you do me a favor? (laughs) (laughs) Not the best start. (laughs) Will you help me rise my group of friends into the upper echelons of high school? I used those words. And she looked at me and said, What? And walked away, never to talk to me again, and it did not happen. We were losers forever, but (laughs) I went back to my friends, and I said, what a huge mistake. Now, what was the deal? I wanted to become popular without actually being popular, right? I wanted Jenna to say yes to me without being somebody that is worthy of Jenna saying yes to. Jenna, if you're listening, it's all good. It worked out. I've got a beautiful wife and two kids, and I don't know where you are anymore, but that's okay. Now, Isn't this true for us as well, that when we think about our life, right, we want the raise, but we don't want the effort that goes into that or the patience that it takes, right? We want to get out of debt, but we don't want to cut our spending. We don't want to do the hard work of budgeting, right? For some of us, we want, we want sex without the relationship, right? We want the things that feel good to us, the pleasure, the fulfilling things without the meaningful part of it, Right? We want the power, but we don't want the responsibility that comes with it. This is where the disciples are at. They're thinking, we want that. That's the glory and the power and the authority. That's the throne. That's the lifestyle that we want. We want to be known. We want to be great. And Jesus responds to them, and he says, you will drink the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. The reason that Jesus is saying this is I know what you want. You want greatness, but you don't want the price that comes to be great. In every great story that I've ever watched, this is something that's true. The greater the story, the greater the conflict. Two ways you can look at that. For somebody that is trying to live a great story with their life, We have got to be prepared for the great conflict that will try to stop us to achieving our goal. The other way to say this is um, greatness cannot be self-serving. Greatness cannot be merely about us getting all the things that we want, sitting in the chair that we want to sit at, driving the car that we want to sit. Our great story cannot put us at the pinnacle saying that's what makes us great. We made it to the top. We have arrived. Every great story will be filled with equally great conflict. Because when our ambition leaves ourselves and goes towards other people, that's when the world says that's a great story and it's going to come with challenge and pain and suffering and it is going to be difficult, but guess what? That's the road it takes to produce a great story. And some of you are here and you're in the middle of that right now. Your story is riddled with pain and conflict. If you and I sat down for coffee together, you could tell me story after story of what made you who you are today, and chances are it was not your accomplishments or your degrees or your successes. Typically what made you who you are today is the great challenges that you overcame. Another way that I believe is that you could look back at what made you who you are is the way that God provided for you, that God protected you, that God guided you. When I look into the Old Testament and I think, man, what makes the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story so great? It's because they were so committed to living a great story by following God that they were willing to be thrown into a fiery furnace and God showed up. God provided, God protected, God rescued them. Great story. When I think about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den, What makes that a great story is that he went in believing that God was with him, that God would provide, that God would protect, and he did. He did not avoid, he did not chase or run away from the pain and the conflict that comes from a great story. They walked straight into it. Joseph is another great story. David is another great story of people saying, I know what it means to be truly great in God's eyes. It means it's going to come with some great conflict. It's going to come with some great pain, but guess what? God produces, God uses, God cares for, God provides in the midst of all of that. And he says, your great story will be my great story. The great story that you crave and you desire will be our great story. And it's okay for us sometimes to desire the throne. It happens in our life, doesn't it? where we want power and we want authority and we just want to tell people what to do. We just want to have all the control in our life. And guess what? That's okay. It's okay to feel that way as long as you remember that the throne you covet is already filled. Right? The throne that we want already has a king, a good king, a loving and kind and compassionate and strong and daring and courageous king sitting in that throne. He's already there. And he says, my throne is not an earthly throne. It is not like anything you have ever seen before. Instead, in my kingdom, if you want to be great, you have to recognize that greatness comes with suffering, and pain, and hardship, and trials. We cannot escape that. In fact, when I think about Jesus in the wilderness, baptism goes out to be tested. Tested. You know what the third temptation is? When Satan comes to him and he says, hey, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. I will give these to you if you bow down before me. And Jesus' response is I will not bow before you. What, What Satan was inviting him into was to say, you can have the kingdom without the cross. But we know that why Jesus chose what he chose is he knew that the kingdom he was going after, the kingdom that he was establishing, the kingdom that he was ushering in comes with the cross, It is because and for the sake of the cross that you and I are able to live in this kingdom of greatness that he has invited us into. Here's the third part. A great story is bigger than us. We cannot live a great story with our life if it's just about you becoming great in the eyes of everyone around you. Not good enough. A great story is about us surrendering, abandoning, overcoming our selfish ambition and recognizing that what Jesus invites us into is far greater and more meaningful and more significant than anything we could ever hope or imagine for ourselves. What we are invited into is a truly great story in the definition that Jesus gives us, this idea of being flipped upside down. So when James and John come to Jesus and they say, we wanna sit in your right and your left, how do you think the other disciples responded? Not so great, right? Look at their response. It says, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Indignant, I had to look it up because I don't don't know what it means, but indignant means that they became physically angry because of an injustice. Paraphrase, why didn't we think of that first, (laughs) right? Why are they gonna get what we really want ourselves? We want that position too, right? Look at Jesus' masterful response. He calls them together and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, meaning everyone not following God, he says, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. Now we see the context of this, because a great story is not about us, and what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you don't want to live like everyone else, you don't wanna be like the person that's lording their power over other people. You don't wanna take advantage of other people. You don't wanna use the position that's been given to you to destroy other people's lives, to make things miserable for them because that's what everyone else does. They chase after greed and lust and power. They chase after things that that's not what my kingdom's about. And What Jesus says is not so with you because you're different, you're set apart. This is not the life that you want. You want to live a great story with your life. And that greatness does not look like being that boss or being that brother or sister or being that parent or being that person that makes other people feel lower than you. That's not what Jesus ever did. Instead, Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to model for you what it looks like to be great in my kingdom. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus does not ask us to do something that he did not do himself. Instead, he says, I'm gonna model for you the greatest story, and I'm gonna invite you. I'm gonna call you into this adventure of your life, and I'm gonna take you to places you could have never imagined for yourself. And he looks at us, lost and scared, broken, insecure, unworthy, not smart enough, not pretty enough, not good enough. He looks at us, and he says, I'm looking for somebody to go on an adventure with. And our gut reaction is, I want that, but it's not me. You probably want someone better than me. But the reality is, Jesus sees something in you that you might not even see in yourself. And he says, No, I meant you. I want an adventure with you. But it will come at a price, it will hurt at times, it will be challenging at times. You will experience some of the suffering that even Jesus experienced. But you won't be there alone. And it will not be for your glory. The glory is already taken care of. It will not be for your throne because that throne is already occupied. It will not be about your great story. It will be about our great story. There is a great story inside of every single one of us and it is dying to be lived. It is dying to be lived. But it, rec- but it, it requires us to abandon and to let go of all of that selfish stuff inside of us to say, okay, this is not about me. This is about Something bigger, something greater, something more beautiful with our life. As we kind of come towards an end, let me tell you just a brief story about my mom. I think my mom has lived the greatest story of anyone I know. My mom raised me essentially as a single mother, divorced when I was two. She got married, remarried pretty quickly. Um, did not have a, uh, a solid relationship with my, my first stepdad. That ended when I was about 12, and she remarried when I was 13. And so my mom worked every day. She had to figure out how to pay the bills. She had to figure out how to show up to my baseball practices and figure out how to just care and love me, and by and large, she did an incredible job. Um, sometimes I give her a hard time because I'm like, it feels like your picker was a little bit broken though on the people you chose to do your life with. And uh, didn't surround herself with great dad figures for me. And my, my third father figure, my second stepdad, if you're following along in the journey here, um, came into my life when I was 13. My mom wanted so badly for me to have a father figure in my life that I could truly become and, and look up to and all that. And for a long time, he was really great. But for some, some reason, something started to, to shift and something started to, to happen. And my mom was always faithful. My mom was always loyal. She believed that if God brought her here, he wouldn't leave her there. Believed that God would do something great with this story too. Um, but not getting it. Insecure, doubt, frustrated, confused, all of those things. And did a really great job bringing me into some of it, but also protecting me from most of it. And just a couple of years ago, right after my son was born, they told us that they were going to be moving away from us and going and moving in with my aunt, my, my mom's sister, who's um, been single almost her entire life and uh, it just seemed like a more financially responsible move for them to move in together. It made no sense to me or my wife or our, our kids. It made no sense. And yet my mom said, we have to do this. So they moved and within one month, we learned that it has basically was a strategy for my stepdad to leave her and not leave her alone. And so he packed up and moved out and all of a sudden my mom was living with her sister in a house that was not hers, in a neighborhood that was not her own and away from, her, from me and from her grandkids, wondering why on earth am I here and looking to God saying, God, what's with this great story? It's not making any sense in my book. Within just a couple of months of that happening, we found out that my aunt had stage four pancreatic cancer. She did not follow Jesus, she had no faith community and she was destroyed by the news. My mom just moved into her house. My mom is one of the most faithful, loyal, kind, and caring and compassionate people in the name of Jesus and just moved into her home. Within just a few months of that, my aunt accepted Jesus. Her whole outlook on life started changing. She found joy that you could never imagine in stage four pancreatic cancer. She started going to church, and caring for her kids in a new way. And she lived for 23 months with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. And when my mom was with her, my mom knew that the great story that was inside of her was to live for her sister in a new way, was to care for her in a new way. And when my aunt passed away, she moved in with my grandparents. And she walked the same cancer journey with my grandfather. And she's now, he passed away in October, and she's doing it again with my my grandmother. It's a beautiful story of her saying, my great story is not about me. It's about recognizing that God is doing something huge and profound and amazing in our family. We'll never make a movie about my mom's life, but I can promise you that they're celebrating every victory in heaven because of what she is doing. So... So, we are going to worship. We are going to respond. We are going to sing because I believe you have a great story inside of you. Some of you are on the very beginning of it. You don't know who you are. You don't know what you want to do with your life. Isn't that great? (laughs) What a fun spot to be confused and scared (laughs) because I know that Jesus looks at you with love and kindness and a sense of adventure in his eyes and he says, come with me. Let's see where we could go together. I think there's others of us in here, maybe the biggest majority of us, that are struggling with our own story because it's stuck in the conflict portion. We don't know how we're going to get out of this one. We don't know how we're going to solve it. We don't know how we're going to get through this. The debt, the unemployment, the adultery. We don't know the identity issues that are going on, the loneliness, the addiction. We don't know how we're going to get through this. And I believe that you have two things that are helping you not be alone. I believe you have a God, a Holy Spirit, who is with you every single day, who says, we've beaten one thing before, we can beat this one too. I've brought you here and I will not bring you, I will not leave you here. I will bring you all the way through this. I also believe that God has given you a community, whether that's a life group or somebody in this church, somebody in your family or your neighborhood. I believe that God says, I'm gonna give you a guide, someone in your life that's going to encourage you, that's going to inspire you, that's going to motivate and challenge you, and remind you that you are living a great story every single day, even though no hero in a movie feels like they're living a great story. They never feel like a hero, and yet they are. That's you. And maybe there's others of us that are coming towards the end of our story, and we're wondering, what's next for me? What can I do? You get to be that guide. You get to be the um, the guide with this heroic backstory of where you have been with Jesus, and you get to say, hey, everyone else in my life, I've been where you are. I know how you feel and I want to help you find a way through this. That's your purpose. That's what you get to do because every great story is not about you. It is about the people in your life. Can we stand together as we get ready to sing? We're going to spend some time responding. We're going to sing and my hope for you is that you would consider where it is in your story you are right now. And there's ups and downs, and there's clarity and confusion in every story. Are you at the beginning? Are you lost somewhere in the middle? Are you towards the end? Jesus is with you no matter where you are. And that deserves response. Could we sing together what it might look like to sing, to seek his kingdom first? Because that ultimately is the foundation of every great story. Let's sing together.